one is expected blessed lineage. Each one of these names I'll be going through is, is one, one human life, one perspective, one experience, and a great thread that less will carry us through. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after that deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thank you, Louie. I think he got the hard part of this morning. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, seriously. Let's pray once more. Father in heaven, thank you that we can meet. Thank you, Father, for brothers and sisters and friends and family meeting together this morning and coming together wanting to know you, wanting to understand you, wanting to love you, wanting to glorify you. Oh, Father in heaven, as we look into your word, even if it is uh, name after name after name, 
Father, touch our hearts with what you would say to us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning I have uh, four sections in what I'd like to share. The first is uh, the context. The context is, uh, or the place of the story. A story is told in a genealogy. And so what we have here is the place of the story. It's in a genealogy. We also have within the genealogy the pertinence, the pertinence of the story. And within the genealogy, we also have peculiarities within the story. And finally, Lord willing, what I would like to do is finish with how do we practice this story? So we have the genealogy that uh, Louis just read to us. And um, when I think of genealogy, I can remember a day several years ago when one of my far-flung cousins, I don't remember if he was from South Africa or from Australia, but he phoned me up and he says, Leslie, Muirhead? I said, yes, I am. He says, I'm doing a study on the Muirheads, and I would really appreciate your input. So I gave him my input of what I could. Most of us were able to go back to our grandparents, maybe to our great-grandparents, but not much farther. And he says, okay, I have most of this less, but I, I need some more. Is there anybody else that you can refer me to? And I said, yeah, I have an aunt that's still alive in Newcastle in England, and I'll give you her phone number, and she'll be able to lead you a little bit further. And so we hung up. He said, thanks. And he phoned my aunt, and he got the information that he wanted. When he phoned back, I don't know how long after, maybe about a month after, he phoned me back. He says, Les, okay, thank you very much for referring me to your aunt. She gave me quite a bit of information. I have really extended the family tree. And uh, he says, uh, I think that you would be interested in some of the things that are said. And, and I said, thank you. And so Daniel and Heidi that year, uh, they bought me a, a, a kit. Uh, what's it called? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, to find out from where I came from. And uh, I haven't filled it out yet. And one of the reasons is the guy that phoned me back about my Muirhead family. He says, Les, uh, your other family from your mom is Crowley. I said, yeah. He says, you don't really want to know what's in that family tree. <laughs> I said to myself, probably true. Probably true. And so for me at that moment, there was a little bit of pride in the family and there was a, a little bit less pride until maybe a year later, some of my cousins uh, close cousins, uh, they're really into this ancestry thing, and they phoned me and said, Les, uh, do you, and they sent me a newspaper clipping of this gentleman that traveled all over the United States. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name right now. David, maybe you remember, because uh, I told you about it. But he was a man that traveled all over the United States, preaching the gospel, and starting churches everywhere. And I said to myself, okay, that's a good part of part of my family. 
some of the genes must have washed, washed off. But here, why is Matthew starting with a genealogy? It's a little bit difficult for us today because genealogies are not all that important except for curiosity. But in Matthew's time, the genealogies for the Jew were very important. They were important, uh, let's say, if we wanted to know what part of the land was given to us and that it is our inheritance. We even see in Matthew and Luke that Jesus and his family had to go to Bethlehem. But why did they have to go to Bethlehem? Because according to the genealogy, that's where the family came from. And they had to return there so as to be uh, inscribed on the, uh, on the census. But the idea that one day God would come, the land would be theirs, and that each Jewish person, each member of the people would receive their allotment. So it was very important that the Jews remembered who their ancestors were to realize, okay, I belong to this tribe and I belong to this part of the, the country. That, that is my roots. It was also uh, important in the sense that if you were a Jew and you wanted to serve in the temple, you had to be uh, a member of the tribe of Levi. Well, if you had to be a tribe of the Levi and you could not serve in the temple unless you were a member of Levi, we had to have some way of guaranteeing that we knew that this person came from the tribe of Levi. And so they used the genealogies. Not only that, the genealogies were important even in going up and going into the temple. If you went into the temple and you had a place within the temple, you had that place because of your ancestors, either being a Jew or being a Levite, to be a priest. So this whole thing of genealogy was very, very important in the first century. For the people that were reading Matthew, the first readers, recipients of Matthew, probably Jews, mainly, they would have in front of them one of the proofs of who Jesus was. Jesus being the Christ, being the Messiah, being the son of David and the son of Abraham. They had the proofs. But the words that are used in the beginning of chapter 1 in verse 2 when it talks of uh, Jesus Christ, uh, son of David, son of Abraham, what we have there, it says this is the beginning of the generations or this is the story of the generations. In reality, the word is Biblos Genesis. And so the idea, this is the book of the beginning. This is the book of the origin. And it's said again in verse 18 that this is the story of the beginning or the origin of Jesus. Well, what the genealogies became, they became a method of teaching history. And so we can read this, and we say to ourselves, for the most part, my goodness, how boring that can be. I've got to get over this very, very fast. But in reality, as we go deeper into the genealogy and we see what Matthew says, we come to understand that there's tremendous points of history that are found in this genealogy that really can nourish our hearts, both with God 
and for what he has done for us and what we are called to do for him. So it's a history. The place of the history is found in the genealogy. But why, you know, why was this so important? Well, it was important because of, of, the, of the history. And the history, according to the verses that we read, a history that was focused definitely upon David, but also upon Abraham. And so what we have here is we have a focus on Christ, the anointed Messiah, or the king of Israel. In the book of Matthew, I believe if my memory serves me right, we have 54 mentions of kingdom, kingdom of heaven, king, or kingdom of God. 34 in Matthew itself for kingdom of heaven. 32 in Matthew where it speaks of the kingdom of heaven and speaking of its Christ. Matthew has the most verses and the, the greatest understanding and desire to communicate this idea of Jesus as the king. Now for us, the idea of having a king might not necessarily be that important. For the Bajans, they've got rid of the queen this last week. Maybe some people in Quebec and Canada would like to get rid of our queen too, but the idea for the Jews, kingship, was especially important. And in reality, what we have in this genealogy by the names that are mentioned, we have seven things, seven principles, seven things that I believe are important for us to understand as we go into the genealogy. And what we must understand is the history. The history that the Bible is teaching us. The Bible is an historical document. It is teaching us a history. What is that history? Well, the history starts in the beginning. It's not for nothing that Matthew says this is the book of the origins or this is the book of the Genesis. What he's doing is he's using his genealogy and this word generations, which is in your Bible, which in reality is not Genesis, it's Genesis. And, and he's bringing us back to the thoughts of what happened in Genesis. Our story begins in Genesis. What is sad is that we don't understand the importance that Genesis has on our own story as Christians. What's the main thing that Genesis is teaching us? Genesis is teaching us that God is to rule the world and creation and the universe. God is to rule through his human appointed king with everyone obeying him. So what we have is we have God as king ruling by his people in a place which at that moment is Eden. The story begins with what God has done. Our story as Christians does not begin, does not continue, and does not end with us. Our story begins with God, continues with God, and ends with God. God is the be-all, with-all, and for-all. Christianity, I must say in my own life in the past, and what I hear from some Christians today, is so much focused upon 
man, myself, what I have, what I will have, where I will be going. And to tell you the truth, I think that that stops us from being the Christians that God wants us to be. Our focus must not be on ourselves, it must be on God. God's will for the universe is that God would rule through his king in a place. Now we know that as we go through Matthew and the other gospels, God wants to rule. We know this because the the gospel that was preached in three of the first gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the gospel that is preached is the kingdom of God is not. The king is here. Through Jesus, the king is ruling. The desire for God, even today, is that God would rule through his people in a specific place. And that place, according to Matthew, at the end, make disciples of all the nations and go where? In all the world. The place where God wants to rule is not just in Eden, not just in Palestine. The place where God has call, is called to rule is in the whole world. The reasons for our Christian life is to permit that God rules through me in every sphere of life. That is the gift. That, that, is, that is what God wants. God does not want us just to be able to say, when I die, I am going to be in eternity with God. That's not the, that's not the goal. The goal is that one day, when Jesus returns, he will rule over all of creation. As Christians, this is what we should desire. This is part and parcel of our story. We see that when God did establish in a certain way a kingdom in the garden, we've seen that soon after man sinned, the kingdom became perverted. And as we read through Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, all we can see is that man is perverting the reality of God ruling, where man himself is trying to rule through any ways that he can. And so the kingdom, the idea of the kingdom is perverted. Then we see that God calls Abraham, one of the personages that has focus put on him in Matthew chapter 1, he, he's called, through, he called Abraham because God has a new plan for creation. He has a new plan for the world. He has a new plan for the universe. And this plan starts with Abraham. God called Abraham to become the recipient of his blessings so that Abraham, Abraham and his seed might be a blessing not only to Israel, but as the Bible says, to all the nations of the earth. So the story is God wants to rule through his people in the world. In the Old Testament, we see that this, this plan was perverted by man. But then God, by his grace, calls Abraham so that the plan can be renewed and his will can be done. 
we see later on that what happens is that the kingdom and the king are promised. God speaks to, uh, to David, who is his king, and he says to David, I will establish your, your throne here in Jerusalem, and I will establish that throne not just for now, but I will establish it for eternity. And so what God has done is he's taken Abraham. He's, he, through Abraham, he has created the people. Through this people, he is going to be giving a king, and that king becomes David, and David is promised by God that God will rule through him for eternity. The people in David's lignée, his, his children, did not do as God would want it. And so we saw that this promise to have David as a king for eternity, what we see is that these kings, there's bad, there's good, there's bad, there's good. But it finishes off in, in, in Matthew chapter 1 with Manasseh. And Manasseh is one of the worst kings possible. And so this promise to have one day have a king that would be on the throne of David for eternity that would permit people to worship God as he should be worshipped and let God be the king on the throne, it's not happening. And so what we see in the prophets is that the king, a new king is prophesied. And this king, as we know according to Isaiah, would be a son that was given, would be a baby that would be born. And he would receive all the honors that God wanted for his son. And then as Jesus comes into the world, we see God as king and the kingdom as being positioned in Jesus. In other words, the reality of the kingdom cannot be known outside of Jesus. Without Jesus, no kingdom. And then Jesus, through his life, goes to the cross, dies on the cross, rises and goes into heaven at the right hand of his father to reign, to reign until that day when he will return again and establish his kingdom forever. And so in a way, the kingdom is postponed. These seven thoughts are in, well, at least six of them, are in the thoughts of the Jews in the time of Matthew as they read this genealogy, the genealogy has a history behind it. And this history is extremely important. Do we know the history? Are we part of the history? Then we see particularity, peculiarities in the story. We have it in the names that are mentioned. We could go through each of these names, even, even the names of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah, these people, in reality, if we were to pick people on whom we were going to start this worldwide movement, that one day people would again honor God as the king and let God rule over his kingdom, these people would not be the people that we would have chosen. Abraham became Abraham only because God called him out of Ur. Abraham was able to have the seed only because God protected his wife from the Pharaoh and from the, the uh, inheritance being corrupted. Isaac, 
the same thing. And Jacob, well, his name means manipulator. I have one grandson that's called Jacob. I told my daughter-in-law, I said, what name are you going to give him? She said, Jacob. And then I said to her, well, you know what that name means? And after I told her, she said, hmm, maybe, but I still like the name. So he's called Jacob. But the people that God picked were not necessarily the people that we would think that he would pick to establish and to develop this plan that he had that one day all humanity, all the world would bow down before God as king. How, he, he picked these people. He doesn't say he picked Joseph. If we read Genesis and we start from the chapter 20 or a little bit later in chapter 20 and we go right to the end, the personage that's the most important is the person of Joseph. But, we, but the Messiah, according to the Bible, does not come from Joseph. It comes from Judah. And Judah himself does not receive such good press in Genesis. But God picked him anyway. God uses those that we would never use to establish and develop his rule here on earth. Think about that. And the other peculiarity is, of course, the four women that are mentioned. Now, I read through the uh, Advent calendar that was given to us this morning by Kelly, and I saw she gives the introduction, and then there's a certain Pat Dawson that teaches exactly the same thing I'm teaching today, but does it better. So if you want to read about these four women and go into a little bit more detail, well, pick up the Advent calendar and read what Pat has written. Four women, Tamar, Ruth, the wife of Uriah or Bathsheba. Rahab. Rahab. Uh, four women that if we look at the Bible and we read most of the commentaries, they're coming down hard on these women. Tell you the truth, sometimes it's good to read some of the female theologians and understand and hear what they're saying about these stories, which are completely different from the way that we're approaching these stories. I'm going to start to get excited on this part, so get ready. Tamar. We'll say, well, she was a prostitute. Yeah. But the reason why she prostituted herself is that she believed that through Judah, the Messiah would come. He was the one to have the scepter. And she believed that. And so she found a way that our father-in-law would sleep with her that she could have one of the inheritors. If we take Rahab, Rahab was a woman that was in great danger. Great danger. Being in Jericho with the people of Israel coming, knowing that when Israel fought against the city and fought against the people within that city and the armies that were within that city, that everybody would be destroyed. Everybody would be killed. Men, women, children, animals, everybody would be, would be massacred, killed. And she knew that. 
And she says, no, there is a way to get out of this. And she put her faith in the God that was leading the Israelites. Later on, we have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. According to Deuteronomy, she had no place in Israel because the Moabites were cursed by God for 10 generations. But she herself decided to leave her people and to go back home with Naomi because she believed in what God was doing. And then we have the other one, which is, uh, I forget now. Yeah, the wife of Uriah or Bathsheba, I'm sorry. And she gets a lot of bad press, as if she was doing a strip show on the, the roof at night so that David could see her. Well, it's not that way. I don't take it that way. She was probably taking a bath where anybody at that time would take a bath. David was the one that was in the wrong. He wasn't at war. was not sleeping. And he was looking at things he shouldn't be looking at. But Bathsheba, what did she do? She, she couldn't do anything. She was taken into custody by David. She doesn't deserve any bad press. Neither did the other women here. They were among the people of their time examples of people that put their faith in God and what God was going to do and according to his plan. Bathsheba was the one that worked it out that Solomon became king because she wanted her son to be one of the recipients of the blessing and one of the fathers of the Messiah that would one day come. You know what? As I was meditating upon this for the last several weeks and I was thinking about these women and I was saying to myself, why is Matthew talking about them? He was talking about them because God had chosen them to further his kingdom at especially important moments in the outworking of God's plan. And if they hadn't done the work that God had called them to do, God's plan would not be realized. Think of that. Think of that. They were living in cultures in which the woman was considered less than less. The rabbi would get up in the morning or the Jewish man would get up in the morning and his first prayer was, thank you for not making me a Gentile. Thank you for not making me a slave. And especially thank you for not making me a woman. That was prayed. So Matthew is saying here, I'm sorry, our culture might say one thing, but God is saying something else. I would like to share with you from the bottom of my heart that the way we as believers have treated women in the past, even up until the time that I was born in 1951, we have to confess our sins. 
We have to understand that our culture has brainwashed us into believing certain things about women that really I cannot find in the Bible. And I just think, think have brought terrible dishonor upon the other half of the image of God. We have got to look out today and see who God has given us as women. And we have to not be conformed to the thought of this world, but be conformed to the thought that God has given us. And one of the things God gives is, is gifts. To not recognize gifts that God has given us just because the person is not a male, even, even to people that are not Christians, it's stupidity. Stupidity. We have got to look out amongst us. We have got to recognize. We have got to accept. We have got to promote. And we've got to serve together with our women. Because that, I really believe is how we will bring people into the kingship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's amazing that the king, when he came, did not come through man. The king, when he came, came because man was not able to do it. The king that came, as Matthew says, his name is Emmanuel. God among us. May the Lord help us to understand our history that we might walk in it as he would want. And may the Lord give us also to recognize the work that he's doing among us and in the world independent of what the culture might teach us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you. Thank you for the book that Kelly gave us, that many people have worked on. Thank you for the sharing that the women amongst us do. Thank you, Father, for their, their work with the BSF. Thank you for their work with the people around us. Thank you for their work with the people that are sick amongst us and that they visit and take care of. Thank you, Father, for their work in worship, like with Nat. Thank you, Father, also for uh, what you're doing in this world through, through women, through people, women that are given to you, that are studying, that are loving you, that are honoring you, and that are calling people to serve you. Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that God himself took it upon himself to enter into this world, Emmanuel, God with us, that what man always managed to screw up, what man always managed to corrupt, oh, Father, you came and you accomplished perfectly what had to be accomplished. And we thank you, our dear Lord, in the name of Jesus, amen.